Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Richard I by Jacob Abbott Chapter 13 Difficulties Read by Glenn Simonson It was but a very short time after Richard had landed his forces at Acre and had taken his position in the camp on the plain before the city before serious difficulties began to arise between him and Philip. This indeed might have been easily foreseen. It was perfectly certain that, so soon as Richard should enter the camp of the Crusaders, he would immediately assume such airs of superiority and attempt to lord it over all the other kings and princes there in so reckless and dictatorial a manner that there could be no peace with him except in entire submission to his will. This was, accordingly, soon found to be the case. He began to quarrel with Philip in a very short time, notwithstanding the sincere desire that Philip manifested to live on good terms with him. Of course, the knights and barons, and, after a time, the common soldiers in the two armies, took sides with their respective sovereigns. One great source of trouble was that Richard claimed to be the feudal sovereign of Philip himself, on account of some old claims that he advanced as Duke of Normandy over the French kingdom. This pretension Philip, of course, would not admit, and the question gave rise to endless disputes and heartburnings. Presently the quarrel extended to other portions of the army of the Crusaders, and the different orders of knights and bodies of soldiers espoused, some one side and some the other. The knights' hospitallers, described in a former chapter, who had now become a numerous and very powerful force, took Richard's side. Indeed, Richard was personally popular among the knights and barons generally, on account of his prodigious strength and the many feats of reckless daring that he performed. When he went out, everybody flocked to see him, and the whole camp was full of stories that were told of his wonderful exploits. He made use of the distinction which he thus acquired as a means of overshadowing Philip's influence and position. This Philip, of course, resented, and then the English said that he was envious of Richard's superiority, and they attempted to lay the whole blame of the quarrel on him, attributing the unfriendly feeling simply to what they considered his weak and ungenerous jealousy of a more successful and fortunate rival. However this may be, the disagreement soon became so great that the two kings could no longer cooperate together in fighting against their common enemy. 
Philip planned an assault against the town. He was going to take it by storm. Richard did not join him in this attempt. He made it an excuse that he was sick at the time. Indeed, he was sick not long after his arrival at Acre. But whether his illness really prevented his cooperating with Philip in the assault, or was only made use of as a pretext, is not quite certain. At any rate, Richard left Philip to make the assault alone, and the consequence was that the French troops were driven back from the walls with great loss. Richard secretly rejoiced at this discomfiture, but Philip was in a great rage. The Assault Not long afterward, Richard planned an assault to be executed with his troops alone, for Philip now stood aloof and refused to aid him. Richard had no objection to this. Indeed, he rejoiced in an opportunity to show the world that he could succeed in accomplishing a feat of arms after Philip had attempted it and failed. So he brought forward the engines that he had caused to be built at Messina and set them up. He organized his assaulting columns and prepared for the attack. He made the scaling ladders ready and provided his men with great stores of ammunition. And when the appointed day at length arrived, he led his men on to the assault, fully confident that he was about to perform an exploit that would fill all Europe with his fame. But unfortunately for him, he was doomed to disappointment. His men were driven back from the walls. The engines were overthrown and broken to pieces or set on fire by flaming javelins sent from the walls and burned to the ground. Vast numbers of his soldiers were killed, and at length, all hope of success having disappeared, the troops were drawn off, discomfited and excessively chagrined. The reflections which would naturally follow in the minds of Philip and Richard, as they sat in their tents, moodily pondering on these failures, led them to think that it would be better for them to cease quarreling with each other and to combine their strength against the common enemy. Indeed, their situation was now fast becoming very critical, inasmuch as every day during which the capture of the town was delayed, the troops of Saladin on the mountains around them were gradually increasing in numbers and gaining in the strength of their position, and they might at any time now be expected to come pouring down upon the plain in such force as entirely to overwhelm the whole army of the crusaders. So Richard and Philip made an agreement with each other that they would thenceforth live together on better terms and endeavor to combine their strength against the common enemy instead of wasting it in petty quarrels with each other. From this time things went on much better in the camp of the allies, while yet there was no real or cordial friendship between Richard and Philip or any of the respective partisans. Richard attempted secretly to entice away knights and soldiers from Philip's service by offering them more money or better rewards than Philip paid them. And Philip, when he discovered this, attempted to retaliate by endeavoring to buy off, in the same manner, some of Richard's men. In a word, the fires of the feud, though covered up and hidden, were burning away underneath as fiercely as ever. End of chapter Chapter 14 of King Richard I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Richard I by Jacob Abbott. Chapter 14 The Fall of Acre. Although the Allies failed to reduce Acre by assault, 
the town was at last compelled to submit to them through the distress and misery to which the inhabitants and the garrison were finally reduced by famine. They bore these sufferings as long as they could, but the time arrived at last when they could be endured no longer. They hoped for some relief, which was to have been sent to them by sea from Cairo, but it did not come. They also hoped, day after day and week after week, that Saladin would be strong enough to come down from the mountains and break through the camp of the crusaders on the plain and rescue them, but they were disappointed. The crusaders had fortified their camp in the strongest manner, and then they were so numerous and so fully armed that Saladin thought it useless to make any general attack upon them with the force that he had under his command. The siege had continued two years when Philip and Richard arrived. They came early in the spring of 1191. Of course their arrival greatly strengthened the camp of the besiegers and went far to extinguish the remaining hopes of the garrison. The commanders, however, did not immediately give up but held out some months longer, hoping every day for the arrival of the promised relief from Cairo. In the meantime, they continued to endure a succession of the most vigorous assaults from the Crusaders, of which very marvellous tales are told in the romantic narratives of those times. In these narratives, we have accounts of the engines which Richard set up opposite the walls, and of the efforts made by the besieged to set them on fire, of Richard's working himself, like any common soldier, in putting these engines together, and in extinguishing the flames when they were set on fire of a vast fireproof shed which was at last contrived to cover and protect the engines, the covering of the roof being made fireproof with green hides, and of a plan which was finally adopted when it was found that the walls could not be beaten down by battering rams, of undermining them with a view of making them tumble down by their own weight. In this case, the workmen who undermined the walls were protected at their work by sheds built over them, and in order to prevent the walls falling upon them while they were mining, they propped them up with great beams of wood, so placed that they could make fires under the beams when they were ready for the walls to fall, and then have time to retreat to a safe distance before they should be burned through. This plan, however, did not succeed, for the walls were so prodigiously thick and the blocks of stone of which they were composed were so firmly bound together, that instead of falling into a mass of ruins, as Richard had expected, when the props had been burned through, they only settled down bodily on one side into the excavation, and remained nearly as good, for all purposes of defence, as ever. It was said that during the siege, Richard and Philip obtained a great deal of information in respect of the plans of the Saracens, through the instrumentality of some secret friend within the city, who contrived to find means of continually sending them important intelligence. This intelligence related sometimes to the designs of the garrison in respect to sorties that they were going to make, or to the secret plans that they had formed for procuring supplies of provisions or other succour. At other times they related to the movements and designs of Saladin, who was outside among the mountains, 
and especially to the attacks that he was contemplating on the Allied camp. This intelligence was communicated in various ways. The principal method was to send a letter by means of an arrow. An arrow frequently came down in some part of the Allied camp, which, on being examined, was found to have a letter wound about the shaft. The letter was addressed to Richard, and was of course immediately carried to his tent. It was always found to contain very important information in respect to the condition or plans of the besieged. If a sortie was intended from the city, it stated the time and the place, and detailed all the arrangements, thus enabling Richard to be on his guard. So if the Saracens were projecting an attack on the lines from within, the whole plan of it was fully explained, and of course it would then be very easy for Richard to frustrate it. The writer of the letters said that he was a Christian, but would not say who he was, and the mystery was never explained. It is quite possible that there is very little truth in the whole story. At all events, though, the assaults which the Allies made against the walls and bulk walks of the town were none of them wholly successful. The general progress of the siege was altogether in their favour, and against the poor Saracens shut up within it. The last hope which they indulged was that some supplies would come to them by sea, but Richard's fleet, which remained at anchor off the town, blockaded the port so completely that there was no possibility that anything could get in. The last lingering hope was, therefore, at length abandoned, and when the besieged found that they could endure their horrible misery no longer. They sent a flag of truce out to the camp of the besiegers with a proposal to negotiate terms of surrender. Then followed a long negotiation with displays of haughty arrogance on one side and heartbroken and bitter humiliation on the other. The Saracens first proposed what they considered fair and honourable terms, and Philip was disposed to accept them but Richard rejected them with scorn. After a vain attempt at resistance, Richard was obliged to yield and to allow his imperious and overbearing ally to have his own way. The Saracens wished to stipulate for the lives of the garrison, but Richard refused. He told them they must submit unconditionally, and, for his part, he did not care, he said, whether they yielded now or continued the contest. He should soon be in possession of the city, at any rate, and if they held out until he took it by storm, then of course it would be given up to the unbridled fury of the soldiers, who would mercilessly massacre every living thing they should find in it, and seize every species of property as plunder. This, he declared, was sure to be the end of the siege, and that very soon, unless they chose to submit, the Saracens then asked what terms he required of them. Richard stated his terms, and they asked for a little time to consider them and to confer with Saladin, who, being the Sultan, was their sovereign, and without his approval they could not act. So the negotiation was opened, and, after various difficulties and delays, a convention was finally agreed upon. The terms were these. First, the city was to be surrendered to the Allied armies, 
and all the arms, ammunition, military stores and property of all kinds which it contained were to be forfeited to the conquerors. Second, the troops and the people of the town were to be allowed to go free on payment of a ransom. Third, the ransom by which the besieged purchased their lives and liberty was to be made up as follows. 1. The wood of the cross on which Christ was crucified, which was alleged to be in Saladin's possession, was to be restored. Saladin was to set at liberty the Christian captives which he had taken in the course of the war from various armies of the Crusaders, and which he now held as prisoners. The number of these prisoners was about 1,500. 3. He was to pay 200,000 pieces of gold. 4. Richard was to retain a large body of men. It was said that there were about 5,000 in all, consisting of the soldiers of the garrison or inhabitants of the town as hostages for the fulfilment of these conditions. These men were to be kept 40 days or if at the end of that time Saladin had not fulfilled the conditions of the surrender, they were all to be put to death. Perhaps Saladin agreed to these terms under the pressure of the dire necessity, compelled as he was to assent to whatever Richard might propose, by the dreadful extremity to which the town was reduced, without sufficiently considering whether he would be really able to fulfil his promises. At any rate, these were the promises that he made, and as soon as the treaty was duly executed, the gates of Acre were opened to the conquerors, while Saladin himself broke up his encampment on the mountains and withdrew his troops farther into the interior of the country. Although the treaty was made and executed in the names of both the kings, Richard had taken into his hands almost the whole conduct of the negotiations and now that the army was about to take possession of the town, he considered himself the conqueror of it. He entered with great parade, assigning to Philip altogether a secondary part in the ceremony. He also took possession of the principal palace of the place as his quarters, and there established himself with Berengaria and Joanna, while he left Philip to take up his residence wherever he could. The flags of both monarchs were, however, raised upon the walls, and so far Philip's claim to joint sovereignty over the place was acknowledged. But none of the other princes or potentates who had been engaged in the siege were allowed to share this honour. One of them, the Archduke of Austria, ventured to raise his banner on one of the towers, but Richard pulled it down, tore it to pieces and trampled it under his feet. This of course threw the Archduke into a dreadful rage and most of the other smaller princes in the army shared the indignation that he felt at the grasping disposition which Richard manifested and at his violent and domineering behaviour. But they were helpless. Richard was stronger than they and they were compelled to submit. As for Philip, he had long since begun to find his situation extremely disagreeable. He was very sensitive to the overbearing and arrogant treatment which he received, but he had either not the force of character or the physical strength to resist it. Now since Acre had fallen, he found his situation worse than ever. There was no longer any enemy directly before them, and it was only the immediate presence of an enemy 
that had thus far kept Richard within any sort of bounds. Philip saw now plainly that if he were to remain in the Holy Land and attempt to continue the war, he could only do it by occupying an altogether secondary and subordinate position, and to this he thought it was wholly inconsistent with his rights and dignities as an independent sovereign to descend. So he began to revolve secretly in his mind how he could honourably withdraw from the expedition and return home. While things were in this state, a great quarrel, which had for a long time been gradually growing up in the camp of the Crusaders, but had been restrained and kept in some degree, subdued by the excitement of the siege, broke out in great violence. The question was, who should claim the title of King of Jerusalem? Jerusalem was at this time in the hands of the Saracens, so that the title was, for the time being at least, a mere empty name. Still, there was very fierce contention to decide who should possess it. It seemed that it had originally descended to a certain lady named Sibylla. It had come down to her as the descendant and heir of the very celebrated crusader named Geoffrey of Bouillon, who was the first king of Jerusalem. He became king of Jerusalem by having headed the army of the crusaders that first conquered it from the Saracens. This was about a hundred years before the time of the taking of Acre. The knights and generals of his army elected him king of Jerusalem a short time after he had taken it, and the title descended from him to Sibylla. Sibylla was married to a famous knight named Guy of Lucien, and he claimed the title of king of Jerusalem in the right of his wife. This claim was acknowledged by the rest of the crusaders so long as Sibylla lived, but at length she died, and then many persons maintained that the crown descended to her sister, Isabella. Isabella was married to a knight named Humphrey of Huron, who had not the strength nor resolution to assert his claims. Indeed, he had the reputation of being a weak and timid man. Accordingly, another knight named Conrad of Montferrat conceived the idea of taking his place contrived to seize and bear away the Lady Isabella, and afterward to procure a divorce for her from her husband, and then, finally, he married her himself. He now claimed to be King of Jerusalem in right of Isabella, while Guy of Lucian maintained his right to the crown still continued. This was a nice question to be settled by such a rude horde of fighting men as these crusaders were, and some took one side of it, and some the other, according to their various ideas on the subject of rights of succession or their personal partiality, inclined at them. Now it happened that Philip and Richard had early taken opposite sides in respect to this affair, as indeed they did on almost every other subject that came before them. Guy of Lucian had gone to visit Richard while he was in Cyprus, and there, having had the field all to himself, had told his story in such a way and also made such proposals and promises as to enlist Richard in his favour. Richard there agreed that he would take Guy's part in the controversy, and he furnished him with a sum of money at that time to relieve his immediate necessities. He did this with a view of securing Guy as one of his partisans and adherents in any future difficulties in which he might be involved in the course of the campaign. On the other hand, 
when Philip arrived at Acre, which it will be recollected was some time before Richard came. The friends and partisans of Conrad, who were there, at once proceeded to lay Conrad's case before him, and they so far succeeded as to lead Philip to commit himself on that side. Thus the foundation of the quarrel on this subject was laid before Richard landed. The quarrel was kept down, however, during the progress of the siege, but when at length the town was taken, it broke out anew, and the whole body of crusaders became greatly agitated with it. At length some sort of compromise was effected, or at least what was called a compromise. But really, so far as the substantial interests involved were concerned, Richard had it all his own way. This affair still further alienated Philip's mind from his ally, and made him more desirous than ever to abandon the enterprise and return home. Accordingly, after the two kings had been established in Acre, a short time, Philip announced that he was sick and unable any longer to prosecute the war in person, and that he was intending to return home. When this was announced to Richard, he exclaimed, Shame on him, eternal shame and on his kingdom, if he goes off and abandons us now before the work is done. The work which Richard meant to have done was the complete recovery of the Holy Land from the possession of the Saracens. The taking of Acre was a great step, but after all, it was only a beginning. The army of the Allies was now to march into the interior of the country to pursue Saladin, in hopes of conquering him in a general battle, and so at length gaining possession of the whole country and recovering Jerusalem. Richard therefore was very indignant with Philip for being disposed to abandon the enterprise, while the work to be accomplished was only just begun. There was another reason why Richard was alarmed at the idea of Philip's returning home. He will take advantage of my absence, said he, and invade my dominions, and so when I return, I shall find that I have been robbed of half my provinces. So Richard did all he could to dissuade Philip from returning. But at length, finding that he could produce no impression on his mind, he yielded and gave a sort of surly consent to the arrangement. Let him go, he said, if he will, poor man. He is sick, he says. I suppose he thinks he cannot live unless he can see Paris again. Richard insisted, however, that if Philip went, he should leave his army behind, or at least a large portion of it. So Philip agreed to leave 10,000 men. These men were to be under the command of the Duke of Burgundy, one of Philip's most distinguished nobles. The Duke, however, himself was to be subject to the orders of Richard. Richard also exacted of Philip a solemn oath that when he had returned to France, he would not in any way molest or invade any of his, that is Richard's, possessions or make war against any of his vassals or allies. This agreement was to continue in force and to be binding upon Philip until 40 days after Richard should have himself returned from the crusade. These things being all thus arranged, Philip began to make his preparations openly for embarking on his voyage home. The knights and barons, and indeed the whole body of the army, considered Philip's leaving them as a very culpable abandonment of the enterprise, and they crowded around 
the place of embarkation when he went on board his vessel, and manifested their displeasure with ill-suppressed hisses and groans. The time which had been fixed upon for Saladin to comply with the stipulations of the surrender was forty days, and this period was now, after Philip had gone, drawing rapidly to a close. Saladin found that he could not fulfil the conditions to which he had agreed. As the day approached, he made various excuses and apologies to Richard, and he also sent him a number of costly presents, hoping perhaps in that way to propitiate his favour and prevent his insisting on the execution of the dreadful penalty which had been agreed upon in case of default, namely the slaughter of the five thousand hostages which had been left in his hands. The time at last expired, and the treaty had not been fulfilled. Richard, without waiting even a day, determined that the hostages should be slain. A rumour was set in circulation that Saladin had put to death all his Christian prisoners. This rumour was false, but it served its purpose of exasperating the minds of the crusaders, so as to bring the soldiers up well to the necessary pitch of ferocity for executing so terrible a work. The slaughter of five thousand defenceless and unresisting men in cold blood is very hard work for even soldiers to perform, and if such a work is to be done, it is always necessary to contrive some means of heating the blood of the executioners in order to ensure the accomplishment of it. In this case, the rumour that Saladin had murdered his Christian prisoners was more than sufficient. It wrought up the Allied army to such a frenzy that the soldiers assembled in crowds and riotously demanded that the Saracen prisoners should be given up to them in order that they might have their revenge. Accordingly, at the appointed time, Richard gave the command and the whole body of the prisoners was brought out and conducted the plain beyond the lines of the camp. A few were reserved. These were persons of rank and consideration who were to be saved in the hopes that they might have wealthy friends at home who would pay money to ransom them. The rest were divided into two portions, one of which was committed to the charge of the Duke of Burgundy and the other Richard led himself. The dreadful processions formed by these wretched men were followed by the excited soldiery that were to act as their executioners, who came crowding on in throngs, waving their swords and filling the air with their ferocious threats and imprecations, and exulting in the prospect of having absolutely their fill of the pleasure of killing men without any danger to themselves to mar the enjoyment of it. The massacre was carried into effect in the fullest possible manner, and after the men were killed, the Christians occupied themselves in cutting open their bodies to find jewels and other articles of value which they pretended that the poor captives had swallowed in order to hide them from their enemies. Instead of being ashamed of this deed, Richard gloried in it. He considered it a wonderful proof of his zeal for the cause of Christ. The writers of the time praised it. The Saracens, they maintained, were the enemies of God, and whoever slew them did God's service. One of the historians of the time says that angels from heaven appeared to Richard at the time and urged him to persevere to the end, crying aloud to him while the massacre was going on, 
kill, kill, spare them not. It seems to us at the present day most amazing that the minds of men could possibly be so perverted as to think that in performing such deeds as this they were sustaining the cause of the meek and gentle Jesus of Nazareth and were the objects of approval and favour with God, the common father of us all, who has declared that he has made of one blood all the nations of the earth to live together in peace and unity. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 of King Richard I This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Richard I by Jacob Abbott Chapter 15 Progress of the Crusade The first thing which Richard had now to do before commencing a march into the interior of the country was to set everything in order at Acre, and to put the place in a good condition of defence, in case it should be attacked while he was gone. The walls in many places were to be repaired, particularly where they had been undermined by Richard's sappers, and in many places, too, they had been broken down or greatly damaged by the action of the battering rams and other engines. In the case of sieges prosecuted by deans of artillery in modern times, the whole interior of the town, as well as the walls, is usually battered dreadfully by the shot and shells that are thrown over into it. A shell which is a hollow ball of iron, sometimes more than a foot in diameter, and with sides two or three inches thick, and filled within with gunpowder, is thrown from a mortar at a distance of some miles high into the air over the town, whence it descends into the streets or among the houses. The engraving represents the form of the mortar and the manner in which the shell is thrown from it, though in this case the shell represented is directed not against the town, but is thrown from a battery under the walls of the town against the camp or the trenches of the besiegers. These shells, of course, when they descend, come crashing through the roofs of the buildings on which they strike, or bury themselves in the ground if they fall in the street, and then burst with a terrific explosion. A town that has been bombarded in a siege becomes sometimes almost a mere mass of ruins. Often the bursting of a shell sets a building on fire, and then the dreadful effects of the conflagration are added to the horrors of the scene. In ancient sieges, on the other hand, none of these terrible agencies could be employed. The battering rams could touch nothing but the walls and the outer towers, and it was comparatively very little injury that they could do to these. The javelins and arrows and other light missiles, even those that were thrown from the military engines, if by chance they passed over the walls and entered the town, could do no serious mischief to the buildings there. The worst that could happen from them was the wounding or killing of some person in the streets who might, just at that moment, be passing by. In repairing Acre, therefore, and putting it again in a perfect condition for defence, nothing but the outer walls required attention. Richard set companies of workmen upon these, 
and before long everything was restored as it was before. There were then some ceremonies to be performed within the town, to purify it from the pollution which it had sustained by having been in the possession of the Saracens. All the Christian churches particularly, and the monasteries and other religious houses, were to be thus restored from the desecration which they had undergone, and consecrated anew to the service of Christ. In the meantime, while these works and performances were going on, the soldiers gave themselves up to the indulgences of every kind. Great stores of wine were found in the place, which were bestowed upon the troops, and the streets day and night were filled with riotous revellings. The commanders themselves, the knights and the barons, and all the other men of rank that pertained to the army, fell into the same way, and they were very unwilling that the time should come when they were to leave such a place of security and indulgence, and take the field again for a march in pursuit of Saladin. At length, however, the time arrived when the march must be commenced. Richard had learned, by means of scouts and spies, which he had sent out, that Saladin was moving to the southward and westward, retreating, in fact, towards Jerusalem, which was, of course, the great point that he wished to defend. That indeed was the great point of the attack, for the main object which the Crusaders proposed to themselves in invading Palestine was to get possession of the sepulchre, where Christ was buried at Jerusalem. The recovery of the Holy Sepulchre was the watchword, and among all the people who were watching the progress of the enterprise with so much solicitude, and also among the Crusaders themselves, the progress that was made was valued just in proportion as it tended to the accomplishment of this end. Richard set apart a sufficient number of troops for the garrison to hold and defend Acre, and then, on taking a census of the remainder of his force, found that he had 30,000 men to march with in pursuit of Saladin. He arranged his force in five divisions, and placed each under the command of a competent general. There were two very celebrated bodies of knights that occupied positions of honour in this march. They were the Knights Templars and the Knights of St John or the Hospitallers, the order that had been described in a previous chapter of this volume. The Templars led the van of the army, and the Hospitallers brought up the rear. The march was commenced on the 22nd of August, which was not far from two months from the time that Acre was surrendered. The course which the army was to take was at first to follow the seashore toward the southward to Jaffa, a port nearly opposite to Jerusalem. It was deemed necessary to take possession of Jaffa before going into the interior, and besides, by moving along the coast, the ships and galleys containing the stores for the army could accompany them and supply them abundantly from time to time as they might require. By this course, too, they would be drawing nearer to Jerusalem, though not directly approaching it. The arrangements connected with the march of the army were conducted with great ceremony and parade. The knights wore their costly armour and were mounted on horses splendidly equipped and caparisoned. In many cases the horses themselves were protected, like the riders, with an armour of steel. The columns were preceded by trumpeters, who awakened innumerable echoes from the mountains and from the cliffs of the shore 
with their animating and exciting music, and innumerable flags and banners with the most gorgeous decorations were waving in the air. When the expedition halted at night, heralds passed through the several camps to the sound of trumpets, and pausing at each one and giving a signal, all the soldiers in the camp kneeled down upon the ground. When the heralds proclaimed in a loud voice three times, God save the holy sepulchre, and all the soldiers said, Amen. The march was commenced on the 22nd of August, and it was about 60 miles from Acre to Jaffa. Of course, an army of 30,000 men must move very slowly. There is so much time consumed in breaking up the encampment in the morning, and in forming it again at night, and in giving such a mighty host their rest and food in the middle of the day. And the men, moreover, are so loaded with the arms and ammunition, and with the necessary supplies of food and clothing which they have to carry, that only a very slow progress can be made. In this case, too, the march was harassed by Saladin, who hovered on the flank of the crusaders, and followed them all the way, sending down small parties from the mountains to attack and cut off stragglers, and threaten the column at every exposed point, so as to keep them continually on the alert. The necessity of being always ready to form in order of battle to meet the enemy, should he suddenly come upon them, restricted them very much in their motions, and made a great deal of manoeuvring necessary, which, of course, greatly increased the fatigue of the soldiers, and very much diminished the speed of their progress. Richard wished much to bring on a general battle, being confident that he should conquer if he could engage in it on equal terms. But Saladin would not give him an opportunity. He kept the main body of his troops sheltered among the mountains, and only advanced slowly, parallel with the coast, where he could watch and harass the movements of his enemies without coming into general conflict with them. This state of things continued for about three weeks, and then at last Richard reached Jaffa. The two armies manoeuvred for some time in the vicinity of the town, and finally they concentrated their forces in the neighbourhood of a plain near the seashore at a place called Azotos, which was some miles beyond Jaffa. Saladin had by this time strengthened himself so much that he was ready for battle. He accordingly marched on to the attack. He directed his assault in the first instance on the wing of Richard's army, which was formed of the French troops that were under the command of the Duke of Burgundy. They resisted them successfully and drove them back. Richard watched the operation, but for a time took no part in it, except to make feigned advances from time to time to threaten the enemy and to harass them by compelling them to perform numerous fatiguing evolutions. His soldiers, and especially the knights and barons in his army, were very impatient at his delaying so long to take an active and efficient part in the contest. But at last when he found that the Saracen troops were wearied and were beginning to be thrown in a little confusion, he gave the signal for a charge and rode forward at the head of the troop mounted on his famous charger and flourishing his heavy battle-axe in the air. The onset was terrible. Richard inspirited his whole troop by his reckless and headlong bravery and by the terrible energy 
with which he gave himself to the work of slaughtering all who came in his way. The darts and javelins that were shot by the enemy glanced off from him without inflicting any wound, being turned aside by the steel armour that he wore, while every person that came near enough to him to strike him with any other weapon was felled at once to the ground by a blow from the ponderous battle-axe. The example which Richard thus set was followed by his men, and in a short time the Saracens began everywhere to give way. When, in the case of such a combat, one side begins to yield, it is all over with them. When they turn to retreat, they of course become at once defenceless, and the pursuers press on upon them, killing them without mercy and at their pleasure, and with very little danger of being killed themselves. A man can fight very well while he is pursuing, but scarcely at all when he is being pursued. It was not long before Saladin's army was flying in all directions, the crusaders pressing upon them everywhere in their confusion and cutting them down mercilessly in great numbers. The slaughter was immense. About 7,000 of the Saracen troops were slain. Among them were 32 of Saladin's highest and best officers. As soon as the Saracens escaped the immediate danger, when the crusaders had given over the pursuit, they had rallied and Saladin formed them again into something like order. He then commenced a regular and formal retreat into the interior. He first, however, sent detachments to all the country around to dismantle the towns, to destroy all the stores of provisions, and to seize and carry away everything of value that could be of any use to the conquerors. A broad extent of the country, through which Richard would have to march in advancing towards Jerusalem, being thus laid waste, the Saracens withdrew farther into the interior, and there Saladin set himself at work to reorganise his broken army once more, and to prepare for new plans of resistance to the invaders. Richard withdrew his army to Jaffa, and, taking possession of the town, he established himself there. It was now September. The season of the year was very hot and unhealthy and though the Allied army had thus far been victorious, still there was a great deal of sickness in the camp, and the soldiers were much exhausted by the fatigue which they had endured, and by their exposure to the sun. Richard was desirous, notwithstanding this, to take the field again, and advance into the interior, so as to follow up the victory which had been gained over Saladin at Azotus. But his officers, especially those of the French division of the army, under the command of the Duke of Burgundy, thought it not safe to move forward so soon. It would be better to remain a short time in Jaffa, they said, to recruit the army and to prepare for advancing in a more secure and efficient manner. Besides, they said, we need Jaffa for a military post, and it will be best to remain here until we shall have repaired the fortifications and put the place in a good condition of defence. But this was only an excuse. What the army really desired was to enjoy repose for a time. They found it much more agreeable to live in ease and indulgence within the walls of a town than to march in the hot sun across so arid a country, loaded down as they were with heavy armour and kept constantly in a state of anxious and watchful suspense by the danger of sudden attacks from the enemy. Richard acceded to the wishes of the officers, and decided to remain for a time in Jaffa, 
but they, instead of devoting themselves energetically to making good again the fortifications of the town, went very languidly to the work. They allowed themselves and the men to spend their time in inaction and indulgence. In the meantime, Saladin had gathered his forces together again, and was drawing fresh recruits every day to his standard from the interior of the country. He was preparing for a more vigorous resistance than ever. Richard has been strongly condemned for thus remaining inactive in Jaffa after the Battle of Asitus. Historians, narrating the account of his campaign, say that he ought to have marched at once towards Jerusalem before Saladin should have had time to organise any new means of resistance. But it is impossible for those who are at a distance from the scene of action in such a case, and who have only that partial and imperfect account of the facts which can be obtained through the testimony of others, to form any reliable judgment on such a question, whether it would be prudent or imprudent for a commander to advance after a battle can be known in general only to those who are on the ground, and who have personal knowledge of all the circumstances of the case. While Richard remained in Jaffa, he made frequent excursions into the surrounding territory at the head of a small troop of adventurous men who liked to accompany him. Other small detachments were often sent out. These parties went sometimes to collect forage and sometimes to reconnoitre the country with a view of ascertaining Saladin's position and plans. Richard took great delight in these excursions, nor were they attended with any great danger. At the present day, going out on reconnoitring parties is very dangerous service indeed, for men wear no armour and they are liable at any moment to be cut down by a mini rifle ball, fired from an unseen hand a mile away. In those days the case was very different. There were no missiles that could be thrown for a greater distance than a few yards, and for all such the heavy steel armour that the knights wore furnished in general an ample protection. The only serious danger to be feared was that of coming unwarily upon a superior party of the enemy lying in ambush to entrap the reconnoiterers and in being surrounded by them. But Richard had so much confidence in the power of his horse and in his own prodigious personal strength that he had very little fear. So he scoured the country in every direction at the head of a small attendant squadron whenever he pleased considering such an excursion in the light of nothing more than an exciting morning ride. Of course, after going out many times on such excursions and coming back safely, men gradually became less cautious and exposed themselves to greater and greater risks. It was so with Richard and his troop, and several times they ventured so far as to put themselves in very serious peril. Indeed, Richard once or twice very narrowly escaped being taken prisoner. At one time he was saved by the generosity of one of his knights named Sir William. The king and his party were surprised by a large party of Saracens and nearly surrounded. For a moment it was uncertain whether they would be able to effect their retreat. In the midst of the fray Sir William called out that he was the king, and this so far divided the attention of the party as to confuse them somewhat and break the force and concentration of their attack, and thus Richard succeeded in making his escape. Sir William, however, was taken prisoner, and carried to Saladin, 
but he was immediately liberated by Richard's paying the ransom that Saladin demanded for him. Another time, word came to him suddenly in the town that a troop of the Knights Templars were attacked and nearly surrounded by Saracens, and that unless they helped immediately, they would all be cut off. Richard immediately seized his armour and began to put it on, and at the same time he ordered one of his earls to mount his horse and hurry out to the rescue of the Templars with all the horsemen that were ready, saying also that he would follow himself with more men as soon as he could put his armour on. Now the armouring of a knight for battle in the Middle Ages was as long an operation as it is at the present day for a lady to dress for a ball. The several pieces of which the armour was composed were so heavy and so complicated, moreover in their fastenings, that they could only be put on by means of much aid from assistance. While Richard was in the midst of the process, another messenger came, saying that the danger of the Templars was imminent. Then I must go, said Richard, as I am. I should be unworthy of the name of king if I were to abandon those whom I have promised to stand by and succour in every danger. So he leapt upon his horse and rode on alone. On arriving at the spot, he plunged into the thickest of the fight, and there he fought so furiously and made such havoc amongst the Saracens with his battle-axe that they fell back, and the Templars and also the party that had gone out with the Earl were rescued and made good their retreat to the town, leaving only on the field those who had fallen before Richard arrived. Many such adventures as this are recorded in the old histories of this campaign, and they were made the subjects of a great number of songs and ballads written and sung by the troubadours in those days in honour of the valiant deeds of the Crusaders. The armies remained in Jaffa through the whole month of September. During this time a sort of negotiation was opened between Richard and Saladin, with a view to agreeing, if possible, upon some terms of peace. The object on the part of Saladin in these negotiations was probably delay, for the longer he could continue to keep Richard in Jaffa, the stronger he would himself become, and the more able to resist Richard's intended march to Jerusalem. Richard consented to opening these negotiations, not knowing but that some terms might possibly be agreed upon by which Saladin would consent to restore Jerusalem to the Christians and thus end the war. The messenger who Saladin employed in these negotiations was Safadin, his brother. Safadin, being provided with a safe conduct for this purpose, passed back and forth between Jaffa and Saladin's camp, carrying the propositions and counter-propositions to and fro. Safadin was a very courteous and gentlemanly man, and also a very brave soldier, and Richard formed quite a strong friendship for him. A number of different plans were proposed in the course of the negotiation, but there seemed to arise insuperable objections against them all. At one time, either at this period or subsequently, when Richard returned again to the coast, a project was formed to settle the disputes as quarrels and wars were often settled in those days, by a marriage. The plan was for Saladin and Richard to cease their hostility to each other and become friends and allies. The consideration for terminating the war being, on Richard's side, that he would give his sister Joanna, the ex-queen of Sicily, 
in marriage to Saladin, and that Saladin, on his part, should relinquish Jerusalem to Richard. Whether it was that Joanna would not consent to be thus conveyed in a bargain to an Arab chieftain as a part of a price paid for a peace, or whether Saladin did not consider Her Majesty as a full equivalent for the surrender of Jerusalem, the plan fell through like all the others that had been proposed, and at length the negotiations were fully abandoned, and Richard began again to prepare for taking the field. End of chapter 15